All right, welcome aboard once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg. And tonight we're going to be ranting about James Bay. And of course, very few of you have any idea what I'm talking about. One of the things that I find so frustrating about this question is that whenever I bring up the whole um, issue of James Bay, people say, who's that? And who's James Bay? And well, actually, no, James Bay is not a who. James Bay is a where. James Bay is a body of water in northern Canada, a huge southern inlet of Hudson's Bay. Perhaps some of you have heard of Hudson's Bay, the big, vast bay in the middle of northern Canada, which kind of separates eastern Canada, Quebec and Labrador from uh, western Canada, the prairie provinces and the, uh, the northwest territories. Yeah. That little inlet, actually, it's not so little, it's quite big, but in comparison to Hudson's Bay, it's a little inlet of, um, of Hudson's Bay to the south, separating Quebec from Ontario. That is James Bay. And the reason it's important, especially for those of us down here in New York City, is because our electricity comes from there. A very, very large amount of our electricity that you turn on every day, you know, every time you use... Uh, your computer or your um, or your light bulbs or your microwave oven or whatever, you're using electricity from James Bay and from the massive hydroelectric projects which have been built on the rivers up in the James Bay region. And uh, it just amazes me how few New Yorkers are even aware of this, even think about where their electricity comes from, much less the ecological impacts which it has had on the James Bay region and uh, the impacts in terms of um, the cultural survivals of the indigenous peoples of the James Bay region, which could actually be considered to be genocidal. I, I'm going to make the case for the use of this word. And the reason that I'm uh, thinking about James Bay at the moment is because last month I attended a meeting of the New York City Sierra Club group, the local chapter of the Sierra Club, where they actually uh, brought some Cree First Nations leaders down from, uh, down from Canada, some indigenous elders from the Cree people down from Canada to speak about the impacts that these mega-scale hydroelectric projects are having on their territories up in the Canadian North. Sierra Club actually brought some Cree elders down to discuss this, and this meeting was particularly aimed at raising awareness about the so-called Champlain-Hudson power line which is a proposed new power line which is going to be built to bring down even more electricity from Quebec to New York City, actually under the Hudson River, under Lake Champlain and the Hudson River, hence the name, the Champlain-Hudson Power Express is the technical name. And this is also all related to um, the so-called Green New Deal, which is being aggressively pushed by... uh, New York City's Mayor Bill de Blasio at the moment, and the notion that, you know, we're going to be getting more electricity from so-called zero-emission Canadian hydropower, a part of um, the city's plan to uh, dramatically reduce the city's greenhouse gas footprint over the course of um, the next 10 years. There's a couple of uh, points that need to be made in regard to all this. Before I begin my rant and fill you in 
on the James Bay project and how this, you know, so-called green energy maybe isn't really so green. Okay, the first is just that. Don't be taken in by the hype. If something is being sold to you as green energy or, you know, the green new deal, you might want to examine the details a little bit before you jump on board and start applauding. That's the first point that needs to be made here. Have a little bit of savvy about all of the, uh, you know, the PR hype about the so-called Green New Deal, which maybe isn't as green as it's being sold to us as. That's the first point. The second point is that in our um, incessant and urgent struggle to try to preserve the planetary biosphere in some kind of shape which can actually sustain human life, into the next century, it's very easy to become demoralized. Nobody knows that better than me. (laughs) Because when you look at the big picture, it's pretty grim. We are going into obvious planetary climate catastrophe at a um, terrifying rate. And the natural ecosystems, which again, sustain the planet in some kind of, uh, you know, shape that can maintain a dignified existence for the human race are, you know, they're just being shredded by industrial civilization every day, hour, and minute. So overall, the picture is very, very grim, and I don't need to elaborate on that point. But there are victories here and there that we can, you know, be proud of and draw some sustenance from for the struggle going forward. And thus far... The struggle to save James Bay, while it's met with some very, very terrible defeats and reversals, has also met with some real victories. And the very worst of what the development machine wanted to do up there in the James Bay region of northern Quebec has not been achieved, largely because of um, activist efforts. And it amazes me, you know, when I went to this meeting of the local chapter of uh, the Sierra Club last month where there were opposing this aspect of de Blasio's Green New Deal and opposing the building of the Champlain-Hudson power line, very few people at the meeting were even aware that there was this whole struggle in the 1990s to prevent the big phase two of the James Bay mega hydro complex from being built. A successful struggle back in the 90s that I was aware of. All right, so that's uh, point number two. Point number two is that there actually are victories. And in some ways, this is a very heartening story, which I'm about to tell. And then inevitably, you know, point number three is that um, as long as we live under the capitalist system, there is no such thing as a permanent victory. And, uh, you know, eternal vigilance and a permanent struggle, as it were, is absolutely mandated to um, keep these looming disasters and monstrosities at bay. Because inevitably... You raise public awareness and you gain a victory and you defeat some monstrous development project like the James Bay 2 project. And then the powers that be just kind of, you know, wait it out, wait for the hoopla to die down, wait for public awareness about the whole question to subside. And then they come back and they uh, try again to go ahead with the monstrous development project. So... That's another reason that the story needs to be told, not only because it's a heartening story of victory for the forces of um, 
planetary survival and a sound environment, but also because, you know, it's a warning that, uh, you know, they're going to come back and try to build this project again. And ironically, de Blasio's so-called Green New Deal may be paving the way for it. Okay. So uh, to commence, uh, once again, you know, Bill de Blasio has been aggressively touting his so-called Green New Deal for New York City, boasting of an aim of cutting the city's greenhouse gas emissions 40% below 2005 levels by the year 2030. And the centerpiece of this plan is the so-called, you know, zero-emission Canadian hydroelectricity. There was a good report, which was actually written up about... um, the sleazy underside to this project, as you might call it, on the Politico website on October 25th, but it left out some very critical historical context, which I'm going to be filling in. That report on Politico noted that the city had just finalized a contract with the uh, international law firm White & Case to explore purchasing more Canadian hydropower via the Champlain-Hudson Power Express, the proposed conduit that would run under Lake Champlain and the Hudson River from Quebec down here to New York City. The city government is also exploring the possibility of actually financing the um, $3 billion Champlain-Hudson transmission line. And the power purchased from the provincial utility Hydro-Quebec would go towards meeting 100% of the city government's own energy needs. Canada's National Observer reported back in April that negotiations between New York City and Hydro-Quebec would start right away quote-unquote, with the aim of signing a deal by the end of 2020. Now, Hydro-Quebec has been undergoing a, uh, quote, significant build-out, unquote, over the past 20 years, according to Canada's National Observer, adding surplus capacity, totaling over 5,000 megawatts. The most significant new facilities are the Romaine River Complex, which is actually not in the James Bay region, but it's on a um, northern tributary of um, the St. Lawrence. actually flows into the Gulf of St. Lawrence, not the river, but the Gulf where it meets the sea. Also on uh, indigenous land, on the land of the Inu people, very close to the border with Labrador. And uh, the second one is the Rupert River Diversion Project, which actually is in the far north James Bay region. All right, so that's pretty much the geographical um, divide in Quebec is you've got, you know, the heavily populated area of the province in the St. Lawrence Valley. Then you go north, and eventually there is a divide in the watershed between the point where the rivers stop flowing south into the St. Lawrence, tributaries of the St. Lawrence floating south into the St. Lawrence Valley, and uh, the rivers start flowing north into James Bay, which again is a southern inlet of Hudson's Bay. And that is the part of the province of Quebec, which is very, very, very sparsely populated. And most of the people who live up there are members of the um, Cree, Inu, and Inuit, or Eskimo, First Nations, or indigenous peoples. And it is their lands which have been um, massively targeted for hydroelectric development, because according to the um, conventional wisdom, it's, you know, it's unpopulated. There's nobody up there except for, you know, the Cree and Inuit First Nations. And of course, they don't count in the, uh, you know, official accounting. Increasingly, they've been, you know, they've had to struggle over the past generations to make their presence up there felt. But I'm jumping ahead of myself in the story a little bit. But in any event, you know, there are um, lots of rivers which are 
largely untapped even now in terms of their hydroelectric potential, which flow through the, uh, the James Bay region, draining to the west, mostly into James Bay, to the northwest. So uh, when the negotiations between Hydro-Quebec, the provincial utility up there in Quebec, and New York City were announced, it, of course, was greeted with much jubilation from Quebec officialdom. Quebec Premier Francois Legault tweeted, and here I translate from the French, quote, wow, capital letters, exclamation point. Hydro-Quebec could become the green battery of the northeast of America, unquote. But Sierra Club NYC and other area environmental groups were opposing any new contract between the city and Hydro-Quebec and the um, group North American Mega Dam Resistance Alliance writes, quote, the Canadian hydropower industry is marketing its power in the U.S. as renewable, clean and green without acknowledging the negative environmental, social and economic impacts being felt in Canada. Okay, so New York City has actually received much of its electricity from Hydro-Quebec since the first deal between Hydro-Quebec and downstate utility Con Edison was signed back in the early 1970s. And the Marcy South transmission line was built by the New York Power Authority, NIPA, to deliver the juice. This deal facilitated Hydro-Quebec's construction of the first phase, phase one, of the James Bay Mega Project, a massive hydroelectric development on La Grande River, one of those rivers up there in northern Quebec, north of the St. Lawrence drainage basin, where the rivers start flowing into James Bay, and increasingly the land gives way from temperate forest to boreal forest and finally to tundra. With the um, Cree indigenous people inhabiting the boreal forest and the Inuit inhabiting the tundra. Okay, now this James Bay mega project proved to be a disaster for the Cree and the Inuit, indigenous peoples of this subarctic region, who were not consulted on the project beforehand. Construction commenced without even informing them back in the early 1970s. When they became aware of it, they fought to stop it in the Canadian courts, ultimately unsuccessfully. There were initial rulings in their favor, and uh, there was an injunction. Construction was halted, but this was reversed on appeal. And finally, in uh, 1974, the Cree Grand Council agreed to a compensation deal for the project, since its completion seemed to be inevitable anyway. They got several million dollars in development aid and so on for their territory in exchange for um, this massive hydroelectric power being built on their traditional lands. As the project was completed, vast areas of ancestral Cree and Inuit hunting territory disappeared under the floodplains, a critical blow to their culture and their way of life. Thousands of caribou drowned as a result of the project. And even fishing became untenable as toxic mercury was leached from the soil into the floodplains by the massive water pressure, leading to some of the worst mercury contamination in North America. And despite the claims of zero emission hydroelectricity, quote unquote, of course, carbon was in fact released into the atmosphere as forests were submerged and decomposed.
under the floodplains. So uh, this was the massive disaster of phase one of the James Bay Project, which in terms of its impact on the uh, health, livelihood, and culture of the Cree and Inuit peoples, I would argue was genocidal. Uh, Certainly, I believe, unquestionably ethnocidal. For a uh, full account of these impacts, Again, this story, which is little remembered today, practically forgotten, even, you know, as us New Yorkers are continuing day after day, every time we uh, turn on the light switch or turn on our computers, we're using electricity from these hydro dams, even now on La Grande River up in there in the James Bay region. Few New Yorkers are even aware of this. The book to read, if you want to get up to speed on the whole um, struggle over uh, the James Bay One project, phase one of the James Bay project and its um, devastating ecological and cultural impacts. The book to read is Strangers Devour the Land by Boyce Richardson, published by Knopf in 1975. Okay, so that was phase one of the James Bay Project, several dams built on La Grande River back in the 1970s. So then a decade goes by. I think those dams actually became operational in 1980. A decade goes by. And in 1989, NIPA, the New York State Power Authority, signed a new $19.5 billion contract with Hydro-Quebec to purchase another 1,800 megawatts, which Quebec hoped would fund the second phase of the James Bay project, which would have massively outstripped even the first phase, would have damned all of the rivers that flow into James Bay from Quebec territory. The Nottoway, the Broadback, the Rupert, and the Great Whale, as well as La Grande. Once again, the Cree mobilized to stop the James Bay 2 project, but provincial authorities held that they had signed away all of their rights to the territory in 1974. The Cree and the Inuit, however, joined with New York area environmentalists to launch a campaign to stop the new contract between the New York State Power Authority and Hydro-Quebec with much of the power to be repurchased from NIPA by Con Edison, the biggest share of the power, the new 1,800 megawatts. The biggest share of it was all being brokered by NIPA, but the biggest share of it was going to Con Ed once again. And... uh, They even launched litigation, since the way was blocked for them to launch further litigation in Canada to stop the project. The courts had already ruled against them in Canada, but they launched litigation here in New York State to stop the project, arguing uh, that if New York was going to be purchasing this hydropower from Quebec, the hydroelectric complexes that were going to be supplying the power would have to meet the standards of SECRA, that is to say the New York State Environmental Quality Review Act, even though the dams were not in New York State or even in the United States, but uh, the energy was being consumed here in New York State. So uh, this case was launched, I believe it was still pending in the courts when Con Ed, which again was to repurchase much of the power from NIPA, announced that it was reconsidering the deal in 1990. Too much controversy. And uh, finally... NIPA capitulated, and they canceled the contract. And they did so just before the close of the two-year so-called review period or grace period in which um, NIPA could withdraw from the contract without any penalty. 
So that was our victory. We got that contract canceled. And as a result, Hydro-Quebec had to abandon phase two of the James Bay project. And it amazes me today, you know, that even (laughs) environmental activists like these young folks I met up at the Sierra Club meeting just last month are not even aware that this whole struggle even went on back in the early 1990s. So, uh, yeah, in 1991, we prevailed. And the NIPA contract was canceled and phase two of the James Bay project was abandoned. But now there is a sense that this threat is coming back to haunt us once again, particularly with the imminent closure of um, New York State's Indian Point nuclear power plant, which I applaud, of course, and is something else that, you know, we've all been fighting for for more than a generation. Con Edison will have to close a gap in its power supply. And this is happening just as, once again, Hydro-Quebec is making a new push to plug, you know, so-called clean zero-emission hydropower, which is certainly not clean and is not even zero-emission, contrary to the hype. And rather than completely abandoning the James Bay 2 project, Hydro-Quebec has been basically pursuing it piecemeal in the generation since the NIPA contract was canceled back in 1991. And the, uh, the Rupert River diversion which was completed just a few years ago, was a key first step. They didn't actually dam the Rupert River, which is what the original idea was, but they actually diverted a lot of the river into another river in the region, which has already been dammed, the East Main River, thereby um, increasing the capacity of the power stations on the East Main River. And in addition to the proposed Champlain-Hudson power line, There was also an expansion of the Marcy South power line, which was uh, completed by NIPA in 2016 to facilitate new capacity. The First Nations up in the James Bay region certainly fear that this new infrastructure and um, the pending contract with New York City will ultimately pose a new threat to their territory. And that Hydro-Quebec in its sort of, you know, um, piecemeal rather than wholesale pursual of the uh, the James Bay 2 project could undertake new developments on the rivers of the James Bay region. Now, since uh, phase one of the James Bay project was built back in the 1970s, certain international norms have been established, thank goodness, one of the ways that things have actually improved since back then, for prior consultation with indigenous peoples on projects that impact their territories. The two most significant of these are the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples and so-called ILO 169, that is to say, Convention 169 of the International Labor Organization. However, neither the U.S. nor Canada are signatories either to the U.N. Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples or to ILO 169. Canada has at least committed to ratifying the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, but has not yet done so. And uh, the U.S. has not even gone so far as to commit to doing it, and we can imagine that is not going to happen under President Trump, to say the least. Uh, And neither country is among the signatories to um, ILO 169. Nonetheless, back in July, the Montreal Gazette reported 
And I'm going to point out, you know, that this was reported in a Quebec newspaper, not in the New York Times that I am aware of, not in any, uh, you know, downstate New York newspapers, but the Montreal Gazette reported that the de Blasio administration has pledged to prior consultation with Quebec's indigenous peoples before agreeing to any new power deals. And this announcement was applauded by Bill Namagus, who was the executive director of the Cree Grand Council, and Jean-Charles Pietacho of the Inu of Equanit Sheet, if I am pronouncing it correctly. And Mark Chambers, who is the director of the New York City Mayor's Office of Sustainability, told the Montreal Gazette, again, not the New York Times, but the Montreal Gazette, quote, we need to make sure that any deal we become a part of is consistent with our values. And one of those means we are constantly looking at the fight against climate change and our fights against inequality to be one and the same. End quote. Okay, well, I am certainly heartened that at least this time around, the powers that be here in downstate New York are at least taking into consideration the ecological and cultural impacts of the, uh, the James Bay project on the indigenous peoples of James Bay. Okay, that's good. <laughs> that's a start. But we still need to, be, uh, we need to be extremely vigilant about this, and we really need to hold their ass to the fire. And uh, I really wish that uh, you know, this whole question was getting reportage, not merely in the Montreal Gazette, but it would be awful nice if it was also getting reportage you know, in the New York Times. Wouldn't that be nice? Thank you very much. And certainly, you know, I join with the uh, New York City Sierra Club group in opposing New York City purchase of Quebec hydropower and opposing the Hudson Champlain power line. It should be noted that this time it's not being brokered, at least not yet. It's not being brokered by the New York State Power Authority and Con Edison is not involved. This would be a direct deal between the New York City government and Hydro-Quebec. So this is kind of unprecedented. This is... uh, not like what we saw last time around. So again, heartening that at least the city is um, at a bare minimum, you know, paying lip service to the notion of prior consultation with the uh, the Cree and the Inuit instead of just like pretending that they don't exist. That shows that there has been a little bit of progress in consciousness around this whole question over the course of the past generation. But um, still, bears our very, very close and critical scrutiny, to say the least. All right, so um, in 2007... Canada's federal government signed a, um, an agreement with the Cree Nation, officially recognizing their sovereignty. And it remains to be seen if this pact will be seen as overriding the 1974 deal, effectively ceding Cree territorial rights to Hydro-Quebec, if a new struggle ensues for the far north of the province of Quebec. And this opens up uh, a whole other question which I'm just going to briefly touch on, which has to do with the struggle for the future of Canada, which is now underway, and the whole contest between uh, the federal government in Ottawa and the provincial governments. Okay, those of you who um, follow affairs up there in the Great White North are um, probably aware of the current push for a so-called Wexit, that is to say, a secession initiative for Canada's western provinces with, uh, once again, federal control over natural resources and environmental oversight at issue. And uh, perhaps some of you remember 
that this whole push for a you know a so-called Wexit out there in um, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba had a prelude in the Quebec separatist initiatives of the 1970s through the 1990s. There was a very strong separatist or independence movement in Quebec, which emerged in uh, the late 1960s, and uh, its real heyday, I guess, was in the was in the 1970s. And interestingly, uh, whereas you know all of this Wexit talk now is basically coming from the right, just like the Brexit, <clears throat> particularly out there in Western Canada, from like you know the pro-development right, as it were. The Quebec separatist movement of the 1970s was very, very much on the left and very much a part of, you know, the whole um, ferment of, uh, you know, that era with traditionally excluded and marginalized peoples demanding their right. And that's what the Quebecois at that time saw themselves as within the context of Canada. Now, maybe that's a little bit that's less of a case now than it was then. But the analysis which was, um, you know, taking hold in this Quebecois nationalist movement, this left-wing Quebecois nationalist movement at the time, was very much that Quebec was kind of an internal colony of, um, of Canada. And the Canada itself was kind of a glorified colony of the United States being plundered for its resources. And uh, it also recognized that even within Quebec, as within the other provinces as well, the First Nations or indigenous peoples were suffering from yet another degree of colonization and were very much, uh, you know, internal, uh, been internally colonized by the provincial governments. So, uh, People may recall that in October 1970, the Canadian Prime Minister, Pierre Trudeau, father of the incumbent Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, actually declared martial law in Quebec, invoked the uh, Canadian War Measures Act, suspending civil rights in Quebec during a, a whole you know, crisis which erupted in the province over um, separatist unrest. And there were, you know, student strikes going on. And there was even a, um, a kind of a, uh, a Quebecois separatist guerrilla movement, which emerged called the, uh, the FLQ, the Quebec Liberation Front, which uh, took some uh, officials hostage and so on. This is all kind of forgotten history today. Well, eventually this um, separatist sentiment became less radical and more institutionalized. The Parti Quebecois was founded which, along with the Liberal Party, became one of the two big parties which vied for control of the province of Quebec at the electoral polls. And uh, there was actually a referendum on independence, which was held in 1980, which was very narrowly defeated. It uh, went very narrowly for no, that is to say, for sticking with Canada. And then the last time around was in 1995. That was kind of the last gasp of separatist sentiment in Quebec. They again held a referendum on Quebecois secession from Canada in 1995. And once again, it was very narrowly defeated. And interestingly, immediately before the 1995 vote, the James Bay Cree held their own referendum up in their own territory and voted overwhelmingly to remain in Canada. You know, very much as Scotland and Wales <laughs> voted to remain in Europe. <laughs> so, you know, once again, we see how, you know, the whole secessionist sentiment or nationalist, at least, sentiment up in Quebec uh, has sort of, you know, gone from being, you know, a very radical left, anti-colonialist uh, 
way of thinking back in the early 1970s to today being very, very much linked to um, the uh, development interest and wanting a, you know, a freer hand than Ottawa is willing to give to um, to plunder the north of the province, to plunder the James Bay region, which is why the uh, the Cree want to stick with Canada. And interestingly, the James Bay region in both uh, Quebec and Ontario, that is to say either side of the bay, was traditionally a part of what was known as Rupert's Land, which actually extended not only either side of James Bay, but either side of Hudson's Bay, and um, covered probably, you know, a majority of the territory of what is now Canada. Now, we think of Canada as becoming independent, so to speak, with the establishment of the um, Dominion of Canada in 1867, although in actuality, it was more of a gradual process. That was when uh, basic self-government was established. It took a few generations for Canada to really become fully independent from Britain. That's one thing that people down here in the United States don't understand about it. Another thing that they frequently don't understand about it is that um, the Canada, which became self-governing in the establishment of the Dominion of Canada in 1867, really just consisted of... um, the southern, and that is to say heavily populated areas of what is now Quebec and Ontario. That's it. It wasn't, you know, the contemporary borders of Canada. British Columbia did not enter the Dominion until later, and much of the vast area in between the Great Lakes and the St. Lawrence River Valley at one end of the country and British Columbia way at the other end of the country, much of that vast area in between was Rupert's Land, including the James Bay region. Again, both the Quebec part of the James Bay region and the Ontario part of the James Bay region were what was known as Rupert's Land. That was traditionally under the direct control of the Hudson's Bay Company, which uh, you know was a kind of a, a mercantilist outfit run by British imperialism, trading with the indigenous peoples for beaver, pelt, and whatnot. And uh, Rupert's Land actually remained a British holding until 1870, that is three years after the formation of the Dominion of Canada. And it took a few years after that for the various provinces of Canada to divide it up amongst themselves. Eventually, the James Bay region, which is kind of like the southern portion of what was called Rupert's Land, was uh, basically divided between Quebec and Ontario. And um, large sections of Rupert's Land became the contemporary provinces of Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, and the Northwest Territories. And of course, (laughs) it's almost superfluous to even mention this, the Cree and the Inuit, the indigenous inhabitants of Rupert's Land, were not consulted about this. So there is a question, actually, that can be raised, at least, as to whether the James Bay region, former Rupert's Land, is legally a part of Quebec, or for that matter, legally a part of Ontario. And there are similarly... Hydro-Ontario has been damming the rivers on the other side of the bay and also exporting the power to the United States, as you can imagine, to cities in the Midwest. Same issue either side. I'm more concerned with the Quebec side because I happen to live in New York City. So, uh, <clears throat> and because I think that the, the James Bay project on the Quebec side is much more, um, much more ambitious than what um, Ontario Hydro has been doing on the, on the Western side. And there's a question of if, Quebec ever does decide once again to secede from Canada if it will be able to legally take the James Bay region with it. 
and Canada's recent recognition of Cree sovereignty may have sown the seeds of a new showdown between Quebec and Ottawa. So, once again, really critical questions here, which, uh, you know, potentially touch on, you know, the entire future of the political order in the North American continent and the pending breakdown of nations here in North America. A dilemma that the nation states of this continent, most particularly Canada and the United States, are going to definitely be grappling with in the century to come. But in a uh, far more immediate time frame, it's really critical that us downstaters be aware of where our electricity comes from and apply a very, very, very skeptical eye to all of this talk about a green new deal. And even apart from the ecological impacts, even apart from the green aspect of the so-called green new deal, even from, you know, the new deal aspect of it, certainly purchasing Canadian hydropower is not going to create any jobs down here in New York City, at least not directly. Um, And even the jobs that it does create up in Quebec, you know, they're going to be short-term construction jobs while any new hydroelectric capacity comes online. It isn't really sustainable in terms of a populist economic program any more than it is sustainable from an ecological point of view. And there's a real danger of, you know, the notion of what is green being dumbed down in all of this, um, you know, enthusiasm for a so-called Green New Deal. I mentioned earlier that the um, Indian Point nuclear power plant is now slated to be shut down. That's definitely good news. And I am glad that they aren't attempting to sell us nuclear power as green here in New York, at least. But definitely there has been a big push by the nuclear industry around the country and around the world to, um, you know, sort of exploit the climate crisis and to plug nuclear power as green energy, which it certainly is not, (laughs) to say the least, you know, apart from, uh, you know, the whole dilemma of what is to be done with the waste, which is going to remain deadly radioactive for millennia into the future, stretching far further into the future than biblical time stretch into the past. Okay, this is just a completely monstrous monstrously irresponsible thing for us to be doing is creating all of this nuclear waste for generations, for countless, like hundreds of you know generations to have to deal with going forward. An absolutely irresponsible legacy to pass on to posterity. There's that whole question. There's the question of risk of horrific accident, such as was seen most notoriously at Fukushima and Chernobyl. The whole question of routine emissions from nuclear power plants, that is radioactive emissions rather than carbon emissions. And then most critically, another question that hardly anybody ever looks at is the impact on indigenous peoples, because that uranium, which is used in nuclear reactors, has to come out of the ground. And overwhelmingly, it is on the lands of indigenous peoples who have similarly had to pay with their health and their lives and the loss of their ancestral territory as the stuff is mined, leaving their traditional lands destroyed and poisoned with radioactive mine tailings. And interestingly, the Cree in northern Canada, on the uh, the other side, on the western side of Hudson Bay in western Canada, are um, among those indigenous peoples around the world whose lands have been plundered and poisoned 
by uranium mining. So have the, uh, the Navajo people of the southwest United States, Arizona, New Mexico. So more recently are the Tuareg indigenous people of Mali and Niger in West Africa, whose lands have been plundered by French uranium interests for, uh, you know, the uh, French nuclear industry. And finally, once again, you know, getting all that uranium out of the ground and getting it to market also entails burning carbon. So nuclear power is not even really carbon-free if you look at the big picture, or carbon-neutral, as they say. So uh, in contrast, doing the hard work that actually needs to be done of redesigning our buildings and infrastructure and so on to be more efficient and consume less electricity. That's what could actually create jobs down here in the, uh, you know, downstate New York area and long-term jobs. And ultimately, if there's going to be any kind of an answer to the whole climate crisis, there needs to be a real reckoning with the fact that we live under a uh, capitalist global economy, which is predicated on endless growth and consuming more and more and more electricity every year. That's what it's predicated on. And ultimately, even the measures for greater efficiency and local generation, solar power, wind power, and what is called soft hydro, which is merely tapping the existing flow of a river without it being dammed, as much as those are all things worth pursuing, Ultimately, I really don't think that they are going to do more than buy us time. And I'm not dismissing that because, you know, when you're in a really urgent emergency situation, such as the entire planet is in right now, quite obviously, buying time is damn important, thank you very much. But it's not a, uh, it's not going to be the long-term answer. I don't think there is any long-term answer under capitalism. And that is a much more difficult problem, which we are um, really going to have to, um, you know, somehow grapple with going forward. So I don't mean to be glib about it. I don't claim to have any easy answers. It's a very, very uh, dire dilemma, but I feel obliged to mention it. So while I'm mentioning dire dilemmas and cautioning skepticism about so-called Green New Deal initiatives, at the same time, I take heart that for all of the horrific damage that was done to the James Bay region, in phase one of the James Bay mega project back in the 1970s, we by and large stopped the second phase of the project. Again, they've been trying to do it piecemeal ever since the early 1990s, but they certainly haven't gotten away with anything nearly as big as what was planned when that um, contract with the New York Power Authority was signed back in, uh, back in 1989. The Nottoway and Broadback rivers, at least, are still completely free still have not been damned at all that I'm aware of. So uh, a real victory. And there have been, you know, victories in all the various ecological struggles that I have either been involved in or written about over the years. There have been victories here and there. A whole other conversation. Maybe we'll talk about it some other time. But um, the Conga gold mining project in Peru in 2013, I went down to Cajamarca, Peru to write about the struggle over a place called Kanga, way, way, way up in the, in the high Andes, where Newmont Mining of California wanted to expand its existing open pit gold mine up there, the largest in South America, into a, a new area where there are um, these beautiful, pristine 
Alpine Lakes, which the local campesinos depend on for water, for drinking water and agriculture and fisheries. Those lakes were going to be destroyed and turned into a giant open pit gold mine. And there were, um, you know, big protests and people actually occupying, permanently occupying, building an encampment on the uh, the site which was where the mine was slated to be built. And um, confrontations with the authorities. Some people lost their lives when um, the Peruvian National Police opened fire on protesters and so on. So it came with a high cost. But, uh, you know, back in 2013, when I went down there to cover the Conga project, it was really questionable whether we were going to be able to stop it and whether those lakes would survive. And now it's six years later and those lakes are still there. And the, uh, the big open pit gold mine has not been built. Again, under capitalism, no victory is permanent. And the project has not been officially abandoned, but it's, it's kind of been mothballed as it were, because there's too much local opposition. So, while uh, we aren't out of the woods yet by any means, so to speak, <clears throat> thus far at least, we've won. And the high alpine lakes of Kanga in Cajamarca, Peru, are still extant and free and undeveloped, just like the Nottoway and Broadback rivers in the James Bay region of northern Quebec. So there are victories here and there that we can take heart from. Nobody knows more than I do that in the desperate struggle, and it really is a desperate struggle at this point, to try to save the planetary ecosystem in some kind of a uh, shape in which it can sustain dignified human life on Earth. Well, you know, I mean, from the, in, the, in, the, in the larger sense, we're losing, <laughs> without a doubt. It is really a desperate struggle. But um, it isn't like victories are impossible. We do get victories here and there. And no matter how overwhelming the odds, we have got every responsibility to posterity to fight like hell to preserve what is left. And not to get taken in by pseudo-green projects, shall we say, like the James Bay Mega Project or Nuclear Power, and to fight with our eyes open and no illusions particularly about the desperate odds, but nonetheless to fight and to draw what sustenance we can from the victories which we're able to win. And there have been a few. So I applaud the local chapter of Sierra Club down here in New York City for um, taking this whole question on, for um, opposing at least this aspect of um, Bill de Blasio's so-called Green New Deal, which calls for um, purchasing more hydropower from Quebec and for opposing the Champlain-Hudson line. And I'm hoping that my little podcast rant tonight has done something to, um, you know, raise some awareness about these issues, which, again, most New Yorkers are, you know, blissfully unaware of, even as we use so much electricity every minute of every day. Okay, this has been the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg. Everything that I had to say tonight is all documented online at my website, countervortex.org. Just click on the link where it says New York City, and it will take you to my latest blog post about the uh, about the Basio's Green New Deal and how maybe it isn't really all that green. Anyway, thanks for tuning in. Join us next time. Join the resistance. Join the Counter Vortex. Over and out.